This is Deep Player. Welcome to This Is Deep Play, a transnational sports broadcasting conglomerate masquerading as a mere podcast recorded in a kitchen. I am Robert Malloy Vaughan. Uh, I'm joined by my co-host, uh, Benetian Separatist. <laughs> Benetian Separatist. Benetian Separatist, Joe Kennedy. Um, Hello. Hi. This is a football podcast that's not about football. Um this is episode zero. We're talking today about the uh, phenomena of against modern football. It's um, it's a fanzine. It's a meme. It's a hashtag. It's a T-shirt. It's um, a whole a, a whole lot of things. Um, we're going to ask um, what is against modern football what is modern football what is it to be against it should we be against it and is sticking with modern football even an option joe where do we start well we could start with the term against modern football and and where we first started hearing it i first noticed it maybe seven or eight years ago when a friend of mine had um Maybe maybe a little bit less time ago than that because on a friend of mine's Facebook profile where he just put Noel Calcio Moderno um, in his About Me section and I thought, okay, I've heard that before, I've heard that before somewhere and um, realised that this was a, I suppose, a kind of proto-meme in Italian football amongst Italian football supporters who were resisting a certain kind of commercialisation of the game in, in their country and I suppose over the last three or four years you start to see it more and more often in not just in England but in the UK and I suppose it speaks to a set of feelings which supporters across Europe are having um, and I want well probably not just across Europe as well interestingly you find that quite a lot of fans in the United States have, have picked up on this on this theme which is interesting somewhere it might be interesting to go in a, a later episode but I suppose for me, it speaks to a set of agitations, I guess, I've had about going to football for maybe the last 13 or 14 years, particularly since my team, Darlington, who I grew up on, well, my, my original team, Darlington, who I grew up going to see, moved from their cosy terrace riverbank home in the town centre to a cavernous ice bowl with 25,000 seats on well, not even on an industrial estate, just on a vacant lot on the on the bypass. And we went there and immediately supporting that club became incredibly unattractive and I only ever enjoyed myself at away games. And, and it made me realise just how little control fans have. Or, or another way of putting that might be saying how little control the spirit of supporting which I'd grown up with has the, how how little influence that that voice was coming to mm-hmm. to obtain how how little purchase it had. So where did you kind of first? Well, I'm am, I'm amazed you said possibly eight years because for me it's in the last year or two. Um, it's um, it's a growing phrase. It's a uh, its use is increasing a, a lot, and it's um, it appears to be in its sort of uh, zeitgeist moment. Um, 
my um, the, the reason I decided I wanted to start a football podcast was um, after listening to another podcast which was about against modern yeah. football and they um, they were a little bit more sceptical of it than, than your, your uh, beautifully put um, uh, memories of uh, Darlington Stadium move uh, shape it um, they were um, dismissive of uh, these what they saw as this left wing um, <laughs> fantasy non- I thought yeah fantasy yeah they dismissed it as a fantasy and uh, a, a quite dangerous one because if you're if you're against modern football then you're for hooliganism yeah was uh, the basis of their argument um, you've given a, a good answer to what modern football what what is meant by modern football there it's um a decreasing uh, amount of autonomy uh, for fans. Um, the argument offered by this podcast, um, I'm not sure if, if I'm even going to name it, the um, Sound of Football podcast, um, was that you know, football's always been a business mm-hmm. and therefore you can't complain about it being a business. Mm-hmm. Um, which, um, is that, I mean, is that true? It, um I read a thing recently by uh, Peter Kennedy, no relation, no, I don't uh, uh, where he he, ex- he argues that uh, football is not a proper part of capitalism because of it, its complete failure to extract uh, surplus value. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that question about whether football's always been a business is is an interesting one, and maybe we can come back to that in a minute, but maybe one way of defining what the, the problem is as such is by looking at, at the forms of resistance to that well commercialisation to use a very kind of general umbrella term uh, that have emerged over the last few years and I, and I think that the first time that people became conscious of significant resistance to the way in which football was going certainly in the professional game in, in Britain or in England more specifically, was the emergence of AFC Wimbledon, and I think that would have been... Um, I'm just estimating, but I seem to recall it was 2002. Yeah. Uh, I think I think the um, agreeing of the, um, the move to Milton Keynes mm-hmm. reflected some sort of apex of it being acceptable to go along with that Margaret Thatcher, Martin Edwards uh, logic that um, smaller clubs needed to, to be put out of their mm-hmm. misery yeah. and allow the big clubs to dominate, as would happen in any other um, healthy, in inverted commas, capitalist, <laughs> yeah, capitalist yeah. industry. Um, and I think since then, it's, at the very least, people now pay lip service to um, a an idea that certain things are beyond the pale. Mm-hmm. Um, but but paying lip service to that idea hasn't always meant that that's been followed through in practice. No, which is one of the things I guess we're trying to chase up with the the kind of hashtag, as you put it, against one football. How how against do you have to be? Does this have to just be a symbolic gesture where people are saying, "Well, I'm against it, but I'm going to go along with it anyway"? Or yeah. are they? There's a there's a lot of symbolism. I mean, I think one of the most ridiculous things I've seen in in terms of football resistance, um, was the green and gold anti-glazer protest where people would pay uh, money to to the um, 
to essentially to, to the Glazers to go into the stadium to wear a, a scarf in the colours of Manchester United's former self, Newton Heath, to protest against uh, the um, to, to protest against the ownership. And I mean, it was such a sort of empty, vacuous um, protest that even. Um, even David Beckham felt comfortable enough to pick up a, a scarf when he was playing there uh, with AC Milan a few years ago. That kind of pointless um, aesthetic protest is—I mean—is that all we've got? Is that all people can do? Or unveil an against modern football banner, uh, having paid sixty quid to go and watch Arsenal? Is that all? Is that the only option we have? Well, okay, right. That that the green and gold thing is specific, isn't it? I I think the more recent manifestations of hashtagged against modern football, where people go to an incredibly expensive Premier League game and unveil a banner saying we don't want to pay this money, but we're going to pay it anyway, is slightly different. But the, the Manchester United Newton Heath green and gold thing um, has a really interesting contradiction at its heart doesn't it because on one hand by appropriating the the symbolism of the club at the moment of its birth for the protest the supporters are saying that there is this deep entity which is different from the current business Mm -hmm. entity Manchester United but at the same time by choosing to go and make this protest in the ground and pay the money to go and do it they're affirming the existence of the current business entity so there's a, there's a tension there immediately, isn't there? Which I yeah. think is quite and there quite is intriguing. there is another very interesting example of um, reinterpreting uh, the identity of identity of Manchester United uh, and splitting it from the, um, the sort of legal business entity, mm. and that's FC United. Yeah, yes, which uh, looks a lot of fun. Um, has. Uh, for, the, for the level they're playing at, which is the seventh tier, amazing, amazingly massive crowds. You know, couple, two or three thousand, between two and three, I which think, yeah. uh, is ten times the average at least. Um, and they're a really, really, really interesting um, uh, example of what you can do um, if you escape. Uh, this sort of bad faith that you are a captive constituency. Um, the, I mean, the idea that football has this captive constituency instead of free consumers is actually sometimes used as an example that football's not a um, a business. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I'm sort of suggesting is we we should act act more like consumers. That doesn't sound right. Um, <laughs> Well, what, what exercise consumer choice? Be, be the consumer hero rather than the consumer victim. Right, yeah, the, the valiant consumer. That's a kind of idea of, of, of pursuing an implication of capitalism to its, its logical extent, isn't it? And trying to turn it back in itself, in, invert the terms of, of, of the problem Yeah. as a solution. Um, there might be a name for that. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, FC United, right? FC United are one example of this, aren't they? And again, I think they're they're quite specific. They they are are fans who have acted, to my mind, in in completely good faith, largely. Um, and for me, and this might be a bit of a a controversial point, 
for me, acted in better faith, I suppose, even than, than supporters of AFC Wimbledon, that they have said not only do we... Re- well, that they have responded to the way that the club that they've grown up with has been treated and said that there are some core values that one would associate with the club and we're going to take them and use them as the guiding principles for finding a new club. It wasn't as if Manchester United were suddenly relocated to Stockholm or to name a, a European city. Um, it wasn't that they were they were suddenly relocated. It, the, the tipping point was entirely internal. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it was based on a disagreement with, with a particular kind of business logic um, which clustered around the arrival of the Glazers and, and leveraged debt. So they said, right, well, well actually, let's do, let's do football better. Now, this is perhaps a naive way of reading it, but I think that they said, Let, let's do football better, and they are trying to do that. Whereas AFC Wimbledon, the, the tipping point was effectively the discussion, the, the destruction of the club as yeah. was. Um, I think there's, le- I mean, there's far, far less debate about whether um, MK Dons is a continuation than, than whether mm. Manchester United under the Glazers is a continuation. I think most people uh, accept Manchester United as still being Manchester United, but... Uh, it's interesting that there's this minority of very active people and by the sounds of it very happy people uh, doing what they do with uh, FCUM mm-hmm. well the, the, one of the differences and I think we've talked about this before just just uh, informally between FC United and AFC Wimbledon is that FC United fans actually seem to be relatively happy whatever level they're at um, that there is no yeah, I've, huge I've aspiration to to um, kind of launch themselves out of out of the non-league pyramid and into which into was different with um, AFC Wimbledon and mm. people we know from, at Dulwich Hamlet um, were sort of uh, a bit pissed off with uh, the the attitude of non-league being a chore mm. um, at AFC Wimbledon and I, I do actually, I know at least one person who. Um, Got a bit, got a bit sick of AFC Wimbledon, and um, elected to support a local non-league team. Um, having having been a former Wimbledon FC fan, because mm-hmm. um, they elected to stay in the non-league, which has its practical benefits. Mm-hmm. I mean, for one, you can you, you can actually afford to to go to it. Well, mo- <laughs> most usually people. we can afford to go. Sometimes yeah. not. Um, which isn't the case in the Premier League and isn't even in the case in the lower leagues of so the Football League. Uh, what was it used? 25 quid to watch what? shit football at Leighton Orient? Yeah, well, I went to Leighton Orient for a friend's birthday a couple of months ago and they were a club that I'd always kind of liked for slightly ineffable reasons from afar. And I got there and, uh, and paid £25 to go in. And I've generally enjoyed watching League Two, uh, League One in the past or Division 3, as we should probably call it. Um, but that that third level has often been exciting to watch because it seems a bit freer football-wise than the, than the Championship. But going to Brisbane Road a few months ago, I noticed that even, even that division had started to become cagey and anxious, um, some, some very kind of defensive, negative stuff on the pitch, and just a general mood of kind of... Um, depression in the mm. in the stadium. Well, they're probably waiting to go to their Essex. <laughs> um, and, and another thing, when people uh, are not against modern football and therefore for modern football, 
Uh, are they labouring under the illusion that football's going to uh, remain uh, frozen whilst uh, all around it history's dynamic? Mm. You know, you know, football's changed with um, every era of wider society and economics. Um, it's going to happen again. So what people who are quite happy with football at the moment, mm -hmm. those ones who are perhaps lucky enough to be able to afford to go and see a Premier League team or even lucky enough to afford to watch Sky, um, what's going to come? I mean, do they, it's not going to stay the same, is it? I mean, we, I, I think you're going to see one of two things. You're either going to see uh, sort of football finances bubble popping or... Or and or you're going to see further breakaways um, as uh, top clubs become increasingly powerful, uh, increasingly accustomed to um, growing revenues. Um, there will be a time will come when a European breakaway league will um, become far 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 too um, necessary for these clubs' economic existence for them to ignore it. They they would be able to get through European law to set one up mm -hmm. uh, as long as they gave enough tidbits of um, sort of trickle-down um, benefits in in theory to, uh, the pre to the clubs they leave behind. You were saying the thing about this fantasy of football remaining static while history around it is dynamic, yeah. and I was just wondering about that because it strikes me, and I can think about this going back to maybe the the 70s that the economics of football and the social practices which surround football seem to me to lag a little bit behind the the broader dynamic because for example you you picked up on the move to Milton Keynes as being the kind of categorical example in in English football of Thatcherism work right you know you said mm. the Thatcher Martin Edwards fantasy that there needs to be fewer fewer clubs now you're looking at that as being something that, that happened I suppose I think 11 years after after Thatcher's deposition um, but they, it was the kind of like prime example of a kind of Thatcherian logic in football happening quite a long time after you know the deregulation of the city for example if you look at football in the 1980s you have these people like uh, what was his name the, the fella at Luton who was an enormous uh, Thatcherite and an, and an MP also, who proposed that, that his club, you know, align itself with the with Thatcher's model um, for for a kind of deregulated market in general. Um, but that wasn't so much the case in a more general sense. Most most football clubs, well into the nineties, were run in a way that kind of reflected a sort of 1960s, 1970s vision of British business. It was mm. those kind of... Um, in the North, for example, that kind of alderman politicking where, where clubs were run as, as personal fiefdoms, um, I think. That that prevailed right into the 1990s in the North, and you saw it in, in the stadia, which, the grounds, which very often, in a couple of instances, still felt like they're in the 19, 1960s or 19, 1970s. Um, so is what we're looking at there a kind of lag so will we only see the real um, ramifications of the, the global financial crisis in football in three or four years well, time well it's certainly 
at the top levels in terms of revenue, not um, it's not suffering in terms of TV deals. Uh, it's not suffering in terms of crowds. Um, but I mean, what you have to remember is, uh, in terms of crowds, football's become very gentrified, and there's not that there's not so many seats in Premier League stadiums that they can't all be filled by a, a very small. Um, sort of core uh, post-forders workforce of executive class types um, so yeah I mean if there is this lag um, it will be interesting to see what happens and, and why would that lag be do you have any idea well is it is it because football is a um, a sort of natural space of resistance where people um, it, I can't remember who said it but someone said you couldn't imagine someone having their ashes scattered in um, Sainsbury's, in or, Sainsbury's or Tesco's yeah, or, or whatever, or a theatre for that matter. Or yeah, even yeah. a theatre or um, or a shitty little art gallery in in uh, Peckham, which has probably been set up by estate agents. <laughs> um, you know, people don't unless it's a performance act. Uh, they're, they're not going to have their ashes scattered there. Maybe we should say where we are at this point. <laughs> uh, we're in the underbelly of the housing crisis. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, on the, uh, the the wild borderlands between Nunhead and Peckham, <laughs> um, which might explain the Dulwich Hamlet catchment area. Yeah, the Dulwich, yeah, just within the Dulwich Hamlet catch, catchment area had uh, well would be, be squarely in the Nunhead catchment area if Nunhead FC hadn't gone to the wall no. in nineteen forty nine. By the wall, you don't mean Millwall. No, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, we're in the Millwall catchment area as well. Well. Um, Slightly closer to. Oh, finally, we're getting to this podcast sort of light-hearted chat style. <laughs> um, well, I thought it might just be good for us to clarify yeah. why, why there'll be repeated references to certain the certain clubs. South East areas. London. I noticed we've been talking about FC United a lot. We talked about FC AFC Wimbledon. We have to support. We have to support FC United down here. <laughs> uh, no, um, we don't. Um, yeah, FC United is very interesting. What point did I interrupt? I don't know. Uh, I think it was the thing about the, the time lag. The time, yeah, the <laughs> time lag. Um, yeah, it was something to do with well, that, copious that, notes. Really. None of them mentioning time lags, but um, oh, uh, it's about uh, you wouldn't have your uh, your ashes scattered in Sainsbury's or or a An art gallery. A news agency. Peckham. That's how correct. That's how much of a new sort shortage Peckham is. That even the news agents are starting galleries. Um, <laughs> Right, we're back after a smoke break. Um, we're not very good at this, so we're probably going to end up repeating things. Um, we were talking about uh, many, many things. Um, well, we, we, it was definitional, wasn't it? We were trying to come to establish what people might be implying when they talk about modern football. I just saw myself in a mirror and realised that my hair had ridden up in a way which made me look slightly like like a mid-period Bobby Charlton. I thought that was, well, dark, yeah. dark-haired mid-period Bobby Charlton. The, the, I mean... Um, Maybe the modern fo- football the, has yeah. different haircuts. The photographs, the photographs you see associated with against modern football um, are often ones from the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, if you... No, um, if you wanted to be sort of tenuously sociological about it, I mean, you could say what what these 
these people are actually for modern football, the football of modernity, the sort of post-war Keynesian consensus mm -hmm. football, and it's uh, post-modern football they're mm -hmm. against. Um, but you know, we we, we may uh, begin to lose uh, listeners. Uh, <laughs> well, I think mo modern is used in a non-sociological sense yeah. in this sense. Meaning contemporary. It, mean, it means what is happening now. But mm. then when people say they're against that, are they, I think in what, what you're implying there, are they against it because they prefer, in a nostalgic way, they prefer the imagery, the, the kind of visual culture of, of post-war football? And by post-war, I mean running right through to the early 1990s. Um, is what they're resisting a certain image of the game, or a certain way that the game is perceived rather than something to do with the financing of the game and um I suppose a distribution of power. What you know, what is being resisted? What are people attempting to to reject there? Because I know lots of people are happy to go to and, and don't want to, to stop going to Manchester City, Manchester United, Arsenal, Liverpool, don't don't want to stop going to these clubs or, or even clubs that are having a really bad time um, and it costs loads of money to go to Coventry, somebody like that, um, Ipswich Town. Uh, they're, they're happy to keep on doing that, but they want it to be a bit more like something that they knew when they were younger. Perhaps you know that is, there is a very kind of base nostalgia there. Um, are they just resistant to kind of soccer AM? Yeah, yeah, and um, I mean, you, you said um, you said about people who, who want to carry on going to these clubs. I mean, that's people who who have a choice. I mean, there is there is a, a case of people having been priced out uh, mm. over the last twenty years. Um, I mean, anecdotally, it's there. Um, what I found interesting recently was that. Um, According to the FA's own fan survey, in 2002, the average salary um, of a season ticket holder was £30,000. Uh, in 2008, it was £40,000. Mm. This is, is in the Premier League. Yeah, in the Premier League. This is an incredible rise. This is far ahead of um, uh, actual wage uh, in increases. Um, and so, therefore, unless... Unless these football fans are all miraculously getting pay rises, mm -hmm. uh, this must be evidence of people being priced out of the game. I think there's such a weight of anecdotal evidence there that you have to start giving yeah. giving it credence anyway. I mean, there's also um, at, at least anecdotal evidence of of people of fans getting older. Mm. Um, there being a a lack of um, not not necessarily. All young fans. I think there's a lot of children who go with their uh, well-renumerated uh, fathers and mothers, but um, I think people our age um, hmm. are increasingly absent from um, top-level football. Because, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, I, th I think we 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 just about qualify as as, as young people, and um, there's a incredible. Um, Disparity in in how the um, recession is affecting our generation. Okay, well, well, here's here's an example. You know, I I went to university between, or I was an undergraduate between 1999 and 2002, and my friends could be my my football supporting friends could be split into to three camps. I suppose there are people 
who go to football frequently like you and I but go and see it at, at an affordable level um, which obviously has a number of benefits which I don't think you get if you're a Premier League fan there are people who who maybe will go along to a, a couple of games a season do most of their watching or supporting on television and then there are people who I knew in that period who have gone on to um, have well remunerated jobs um, and do go and see say Arsenal particularly I know quite a lot of Arsenal season ticket holders from my university days um, and I know for a fact that they are paid a lot more money than I am at the moment yeah you know we are when um when Arsenal wanted to raise some money for the rebuilding of the North Bank in 1991 and the last game of the season uh, when they were lifting the league trophy um, they gave out uh, brochures for a bond issue mm-hmm. um, and basically the only benefit of the bond which was £1,500 I think was that you would um, get first dibs on season tickets mm-hmm. for 20 years and there was a bit of an outcry about this and then they um to make it more palatable, they promised to only um, offer uh, in- inflation uh, to, to link these these season tickets for the bondholders to uh, inflation, um, and they provided a document showing how by two thousand and two, the uh, average the season ticket price could be. Um, Seven hundred pounds, mm-hmm. and they'd be saving three hundred pounds. Uh, and but in reality, the the cheapest season ticket price by two thousand two was twice that. So right, yeah. And now and now it's even more in, uh, incredibly um, expensive. So even by Arsenal's scaremongering, look how much the t- season tickets are going to cost. Tactics in nineteen ninety one, it's still gone up twice that right so they'd actually uh, underestimated significantly yeah. or, or misprojected if, if you like I, I think Newcastle I seem to recall um, did something quite similar in I think 1993 1994 where they were experiencing their first and I suppose only flush of real success um, in this in this period um, and there was quite a lot of outcry. There was there was talk. I think a, a membership scheme which would would again give people first first dibs on on season tickets, and it was going to be very costly. Um, so there have been those kind of schemes. And Newcastle is a club where you know where you can see a number of people have been priced out of going going to see their, their local team. Um, they're a special case. They're probably a whole episode in themselves, Newcastle. I think, but. Um, yeah, as, as we're saying, the, the people I know, the people I socialise with, generally do not go and watch Premier League or even Championship football on a regular basis. And are they people who, 20, 30 years ago, would have? Well, this is a question, isn't it? I, I mean, I think it's always always worth asking yourself whether you're just naturally a kind of obscurantist. Do, you know, do, is, do we go to see... Dulwich Hamlet or do we go and see uh, well in my case Darlington because 
there's a kind of willfulness there. I want to do something that's different, or am I going because they're my local team and financially I can't afford to go and see Crystal Palace every week. I can't afford to go and see Millwall every week. No. Um, but yeah, you know, may, there's a, a possibility that had I moved down to, to South London 30 years ago or 20 years ago, I might have ended up going to Palace frequently. Um, it would have been, I assume, more affordable for somebody who does the job that I do. Um, at the moment, Dulwich is basically the limits of affordability for for what yeah. I can do regularly. Same here. But, um, I mean, I'm quite happy with the way it's worked out. Yes, um, we, we've, we've had good fortune there, haven't we? Yeah, um, yeah it's, it's, a, it's a great club. And, um, I mean... When you see some of the other uh, <laughs> fan cultures that we that Dulwich come up against, mm. um, you realise you are you, you've struck it lucky. Mm. Well, <laughs> yeah, I think there's there's a specific club we might be talking about there, isn't there as well? You know, in terms of in terms of local rivalry, it's quite. I think if you for people who maybe have only just started going to Dulwich this season. And there are going to be a few of them. It would be easy enough to assume that non-league football is always like that, and to mm. perhaps be surprised when you go to Hearn Bay or somewhere like that, and you realise that they they don't have um, fifty flags behind the goal, just just one one loyalist flag up. <laughs> Sorry, this is getting very anecdotal now, but um, but anyway, yeah. the... the there is a kind of pleasure in going to see something that feels a little bit less con- controlled, where you can wander around, have a drink around the pitch, where you can jump up and down and sing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, yeah, hopefully no one from the uh, Ryman League's listening. Um, I, I, I doubt they're interested in football culture. Um, I think per capita, uh, Dulwich Hamlet would cause more trouble this season than Mill. Um, you know, when you think about, it, you know, we've got the uh, the smoke bombs at Tooting, um, the collapsing of the wall um, at um, Leatherhead. This is um, not a, a we've question got, of culpability, by the way. We've oh. got um, um, pretty much starting the the is. I'm not very good. And. And yeah, you know, when you think in terms of numbers, when there was thirty thousand Millwall fans at Wembley, a couple of them started fighting. You know, Dutch Hamlet are more probably more badass, more uh, <laughs> more masculine, uh, more secure in their sexuality than um, than Millwall fans. It's basically what I'm saying, especially the EDL ones. Um, no, most Millwall fans are, are good sort of EF types, unlike me. Um, <laughs> I appear to be turning to Johnny Rotten now. Um, uh, anyway, against modern football, was so, um, <laughs> this is going somewhere. Um, yeah, maybe we could just read out a few facts. Um, One of the cats is right. asleep in despair. Um, right. So, um, what we have on uh, the nineteenth. It depends on my uh, editing skills as to whether this is out by then or not. But um, there's a protest organised by some sort of Liverpool fan group, uh, Spirit of Shank... Spirit of... Sh- I vomited a little when I said the word Shankly. Um, <laughs> what could this possibly mean? Um, 
spirit of Shankly have organised a protest about ticket prices um, outside the Premier League headquarters uh, on Wednesday the 19th of June. Um, now, yeah, um, you've got increased... Incre like, as I said, against modern football, it's of the zeitgeist. It's often about ticket prices. Um, we've got Premier League fans now, now... <laughs> all of a sudden uh they're like hang on these ticket prices are incre increasing i mean it, it's it, it's like um the residents of the king's road in chelsea uh suddenly being like oh my god it's 2013 and look at the fucking state of our fucking rents <laughs> um you know let's do something about this you know it, it's like i mean you often get i mean you know football top level football's gone through a process of gentrification uh that that is the word for it um and you you often get this in um, in local towns. Um, it's the it's people who are one wave of gentrification are the ones who begin to sort of complain about, uh, organise, uh, do wonderful Banksy style stenciled uh, graffiti complaints about uh, gentrification. Um, I had this whole suspicion, and you know, other people have said it as well that like people are you know looking out for themselves. Uh, using um the against modern football meme as a kind of i'm thinking of the word fig leaf but i don't think i mean fig leaf uh, a kind of um maybe a fig leaf for, for their own sort of bourgeois consumption uh, right it's it's bad faith again isn't it? It, it there's no real agency involved in taking a banner into a ground to demonstrate against a, t a ticket costing sixty or seventy pounds when you're paying that money. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. There's a boycotts money, and I think um, boycotts um, happen in continental uh, football cultures. Yeah, they certainly have. Um, and or even just. I mean, what I find quite interesting is uh, there was meant to be a march, a protest, anti-glazer protest march. On, on the match before Gla the Glazers' takeover happened. Mm -hmm. And they called it off, presumably because of a lack of interest or it was badly organised or whatever. And then three days, four days later, uh, Glazer makes the offer to the majority of big shareholders, which um, makes the takeover an, an inevitability. And I, I thought that was quite interesting. I mean... Because there'd been a lot of noise about um, about protests, about disruptive activities and stuff, and the moment they failed, um, the takeover happened. I mean, I, I have no idea if that's coincidence or not. Well, I, I don't know enough about, or I can't cast my mind back to that um, adequately to to say much about that. But I think the point here and the thing that needs to be. Um, antagonised I think is is the fatalism which is coupled up with I think a quite banal notion of loyalty right so we have on one hand people saying it will happen anyway so you make a, you create a kind of spectacle of, of resistance of disagreement um, which as you say does act to a degree as a fig leaf on the other hand, you say you find people who say, "Well, I'm going to keep on doing it anyway because this is my club. I support them. I've been brought up to support them, and so on and and so forth." Actually, it's not entirely dissimilar to where the Labour Party have ended up now, in in as much as people will 
continued to vote for Labour for a very long time. Vote for Labour despite the fact that the party did not share any of the values that that constituency theoretically did. Um, and this was often premised on loyalty and it was a loyalty which was abused. This is what we see with, with football now. So there's an, there's an abuse of loyalty on the parts of or a manipulation of loyalty on the part of the club. This is something which is carried through in a very strategic way in clubs' branding, right? And on the other hand, you have that fatalism, that, that I suppose capitalist realism. We can't do anything about it. We can just say we don't like it, but we can't do anything about it. The only way to deal with these issues is is through not going to the match, is through staging protests and, and so on. It's saying, you know... And even uh, setting up... In new the clubs. extreme example, or, it's setting up a new club. Or the ultimate in in good faith is to go to another club. Yeah. Um, Potentially. So. Which you, I mean, even though I say it, um, and I, I find it, it, it feels wrong. Like, it, it feels like against everything you've been brought up to believe in this kind of state religion of Premier League football. But mm. um, you can walk away and support a club that you can actually go to. Mm. Um, yeah, so, I mean, there's options there. You know, um, There is literally no club in the upper echelons of the English game which do not have another club near them that you can... That, you know, not a park club, but even in supposed outposts of, of football, like Newcastle, for example, there are a number of non-league teams who... Well, Within said, five five miles of St James's Park, you could go and see. Like, um, was it ninety five percent of people who go to Premier League games? Um, it's not their local club. Is that that the statistic? Something like that. Yeah, right, and that that's just uh, well, it depends how you define local club, isn't it? Because I think for nearly and this again is probably bad faith to a degree. Um, I. If I had supported my truly, truly, truly local club when I'd been growing up, I would have walked five minutes down the road to go and see a, a team who play in a ground where I could, where one season it would be free and one season it would be fifty pence. But you know, not even a roped-off pitch in those days, if I can remember. And I suppose everyone sets up a base baseline there, don't they? My baseline is usually are the floodlights. Ah, you know? uh, yeah, yeah. Are the yeah. floodlights? Do you pay to get in? Weirdly, the kind of reality of football sporting is conditioned by whether you you choose to consume or not. Um, so I'm not. I think it would probably be quite unrealistic to suggest that people go and watch their local park team. You know, there's a kind of mass breakaway from from whoever Arsenal, and then people go and watch adopt a team on Hackney Marshes. But well, they can't do it in the London Borough of Islington because there's only one full size grass pitch in the borough. <laughs> uh, the uh, Ashburton Grove uh, Stadium. Um, Is that true? Yeah. Really? I haven't yeah. gone on a helicopter and encountered, but yeah, but apparently it's true. Um, the thing that we could consider now is where is this thing called modern football particularly visible? Um, is it necessarily in Manchester United, Manchester City, the, the big clubs, the clubs who do charge astronomical amounts of money to see these slightly rollerball style future players um, or are the problems and contradictions of modern football most visible in the clubs who if you're of a certain age and I, by that I mean if you're our age around 30 you might assume to be natural Premier League clubs so you know, Sheffield Wednesdays, Ipswiches, Coventry's 
clubs that may have been around at the formation of the Premier League and have subsequently generally struggled. The helpful idiots who voted for their uh, their own sort of capitalist holocaust. Yes, exactly. <laughs> the, those the the helpful idiots, the useful idiots. Um, and those clubs have subsequently never really recovered, have they? They they have positioned their fans so that the fans are led to believe that anything that isn't being in the Premier League is is failure. Um, and this leads to, you know, this is used as a premise for a certain kind of way of spending money and a certain way of raising money. That way of raising money is by charging what really are exorbitant fees to, you know, prices. Impossible fees. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, what, why? I would... I would rather, I suppose, I would be more comfortable with paying £70 to see Manchester City than I would be with paying between £30 and £40 to see a Sheffield Wednesday side languishing at the bottom of the Championship. Um, because, you know, I know that I'm paying that £40 so that they can go and sign one of those players who seem to do the circuit of those clubs who will be effective for maybe half a season and then will linger around and um, and take the piss basically um, that that kind of very pragmatic investment that that all of these clubs seem to to fall victim to. Um, so you know you see that contradiction again and again. So many clubs who are, are representative of this. Leeds are another example, of course. Bradford, I think, uh, could be could be thought of in that way as well. And Luton, you you mentioned. Mm, yeah, Luton are the worst off, aren't they? From that. That lot. Um, the the thing about the Sheffield Wednesdays and the Oldhams, etc. Uh, uh, what point, other than legal entity uh, loyalty, do they serve the fans? Um, and this, I mean, they're, they're never going to win anything, are they? Um, they're just stuck. Um, and I'll extend this point to you know the Premier League below fourth place, with possibly the exception of. Liverpool, whose um, big five status has, you know, enabled them to scrabble around near the top rather than, you know, being relegated to the conference, which their twenty years of mismanagement surely demands. Um, There's just a growing number of clubs who will simply never win the league again, never challenge for the league again, uh, never even gain promotion to the new top flight, which is the Champions League. And the fans are paying incredible amounts for the privilege of being jammed in the colon of a very constipated and unsporting system. Surely something must give. Uh, Teams like FC United, uh, AFC Wimbledon, uh, and uh, just uh, people like us having a a lack of bad faith and going somewhere like Dulwich Hamlet provides a shining light of what could be a, a happy conclusion to all this. The unhappy ending would be that these fans give up or die out and their children support a G14 club via satellite television. And that question, which way it goes, will uh, determine whether I'm for or against future football. Well, this is it, isn't it? Future football is the perhaps the the hashtag we need a kind of for future football rather than against modern football yeah. you know, what, what, what's it going to be what, what do we want to, to happen because as we've established earlier you know being for modern football is useless because it's, it's not going to stay mm-hmm. um, in, in 
this sort of stasis. Um, there's going to be change. Uh, we don't know how it's going. We were talking earlier before we recorded about um, the potential accelerationism of assuming there's going to be a, a sort of financial crash in top-level football. Um, we're not going to get into that detail right now. Um, maybe there'll be an episode of about. Yeah, the, m- maybe, maybe we'll when we've uh, done when we've done some more reading. Um, but, um, yeah, um, I want to be for future football. I, um, I want to be proactive. Um, I want to protect this uh, thing that I love and this thing that um, provides me with enormous amounts of social and cultural capital. I think to be. F- to kind of create a, an image of future football, what needs to be understood is the way that I think very cunningly modern football has positioned what happens on the pitch as you know having a kind of primacy. It's uh, it's this idea that you're obsessed with the the kind of narrative of of the the games of you're obsessed with the players. Um, that what happens within the boundary of the pitch is um, kind of determines how you'll feel, determines your kind of emotional well-being for a certain amount of time. Rather than being able to have a good day out, well, losing. Yeah, yeah, you know, ultimately, we, you can have a good or at least kind of affecting day out losing. You can, it, it can be depressing, but ultimately, what football fans need to start grasping again is that that, that kind of feeling of it being crap, it being rubbish is perhaps in a slightly perverse way one of the things that you enjoy about football you know, I, I'm not sure I want to always see the best players, I'm not sure I want to see slick um, kind of post-Guardiola tactics being implemented on part pitches that is only exciting to a certain degree what you get from, from football ultimately or what you should get from football and what I suppose future football should be is an experience of genuine sociality at, uh, at football matches which is what has been Robbed, I think, um, by football clubs, it, you know, kind of marketing of the game being the thing. You know, there's a there's a great uh, David Mitchell sketch where he walks around the, the pitch pretending to be adver- pretending to be advertising a, um, a kind of Sky Super Sunday oh, thing. You know, yeah. and he keeps on going. The football will never end. The football will never end. The passion, you know, the passion, the drama. Kind what was of, it like the furious derbies and? Yeah, exactly. Um, because it's it's all on the pitch, and as a fan, your kind of your desire is absolutely focused on on that kind of green green rectangle. And actually, no, you know, I sort of like losing to a degree. I like I like that that feeling you get, the, the feeling of kind of experiencing the contradictions, the problems of the game, that kind of uncanny experience, yeah. which produces a kind of social experience. If you think about, well, just because people who are listening to this probably won't know this story. Robert referred to earlier the Leatherhead Wall story. And I think that the our response to the Leatherhead Wall thing was kind of uh, representative of what future football could be like. And Dulwich played a game, I think, in, in February, wasn't it, where yep. they were winning 2-0 um, or with 10 minutes ago. But after the second goal was scored, uh, a retaining, not a retaining wall, a wall... Perimeter. A perimeter wall collapsed and the referee decided that this necessitated the abandonment of the game. Under pressure from the Leverhead players. Yeah, I think, well, for, for Lee... That's Lee, part of the narrative, which is the important thing here. It's, it's, it's part of the narrative as, as we have, have constructed it as supporters, so, I think. Um, but what happened was that the Ryman League refused to let the results stand and insisted that the game should be replayed. It was replayed nearly at the very end of the season... 
and we went I, I suppose it was about 120 130 went to, to Leatherhead and I think not a single man or woman there went expecting Dulwich to get a result we we knew it was kind of in the stars wasn't it we were, we yeah. were going to there to lose and we were going there to experiencing the, experience the kind of exquisite pain yeah. of losing unjustly um, and that a Kafkaesque shudder a Kafka yeah a kind of Kafkaesque experience I think I'll elaborate on the, the kind of Kafkaesque element um, in, in another episode but that, that was the kind of perverse pleasure of it and, and pleasure we, we also we also it. dressed up as health and safety officials <laughs> which sounds kind of awful um, it sounds like like, sounds a, like a, a lame but Ben Elton uh, sitcom uh, yeah make, make, making a joke out of health and safety but uh, it was the, the doing it collective and being there um, amongst it and it being part of this weird sort of misery ritual um, made it very enjoyable. Um, also, the fact that um, some of the Leatherhead fans uh, chanted, you're, you're so fucking weird or something. <laughs> um, it was a, a bit funereal, it, albeit in high-vis. Um, so, but it was deep play, wasn't it? I think. It, was, it was building it. It was part of the deep play. The um, moments like that made winning the division even more euphoric, uh, a euphoria that I don't think Manchester United fans of a certain young age have ever experienced. Mm. Um, and with that, uh, I think that's more than enough for now. Next week, we'll be um, asking the question, what if Dominic Sandbrook had become a football hooligan in 1984? <laughs> Thank you. It's goodbye from me and goodbye from Joe. Thank you. Cheers. One last thing. We are available on Twitter uh, at This Is Deep Play. Get in touch. Tell us where we're wrong. Tell us where we're right. Tell us where we're somewhere in between. Uh, try and use the hashtag for future football as well. And um, if you want to arrange to kick our heads in, uh, well, our diaries are quite busy. Uh, and the Ryman League if you want to find out what I bleeped out unfortunately that is classified information goodbye